Good afternoon. It's good to be together today worshiping the Lord. We're so thankful to see a few visitors. That's a blessing. Uh, We're so thankful for those that came to the prayer meeting this morning. We had a blessed time laboring uh, before the Lord, uh, interceding for each of you who couldn't be there for various reasons. And now, as we come to the Word of God, I'd ask you to turn to Mark chapter 2, please. Mark chapter 2. Title of the message is Fasting with Sincerity. And um, it's been since before COVID, since we as a church have had a corporate day of prayer and fasting. Probably been over three years, actually. And so the elders thought it would be beneficial for us for a number of reasons. And there is that full 8.5 by 11 sheet in the back if... uh, Most of you are on our email list. You received the email that has um, the sheet that I sent out as a guideline for us today, uh, later this afternoon, even this evening. And um, so we pray and trust that the Lord will use it first in your own heart, in your own soul, and lighting a fire afresh again inside of you to have a passion to know the Lord and to love His Word, to confess any sin that might be lingering there, and then to be more useful in the kingdom of God. So today we'll be looking at that Matthew 6 passage. Uh, I'll come back to that later. Uh, Pastor Steve just read that, but let's look now at Mark 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at a table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them. If you didn't catch it the first time, Mark says there was a lot of sinners and tax collectors, right? And they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors. They said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors? And hearing this, Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then our text today Beginning in verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have The bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away. And from it, then, the new from the old, and it is a worse tear that results. No one puts new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be lost in the skins as well. No one puts new wine into fresh 
wineskin, or but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that we can come together on this Lord's Day. We thank you for the one in seven principle. We can set aside all the cares and distractions of our lives for one day and devoted in worship and adoration to you. We pray your blessing upon this time in your word that it would be beneficial for everyone that is here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remember, you know, the the Gospels, the four Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you know, there's 400 years of silence from those minor prophets, right? You got Malachi, and it's anticipating the coming of the Lord. And for us, we simply flip the page, and it says, welcome to the New Testament. And we don't know, we have to remind ourselves, there's 400 years there. And so Jesus Christ coming on the scene, the big picture after 400 years of silence is a divine invasion of the kingdom of God. It's an eschatological time as he comes onto the scene and and fulfills the kingdom of God. He says says there that, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Very first words out of his mouth, chapter, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Mark uses this analogy, these terms throughout were, and immediately this and immediately that. It shows the urgency of what's going on in the life and ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. I read that previous section because it's helpful for us to, to understand how it connects to our text today. And and really what you have here is a scandal. The one that claims to be Messiah. Here here he's dining with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. Can you imagine the scandal of the religious elite? Can you believe he's sitting there? He can't be who he says he was, right? And that's kind of the the context. And, And brethren, that's the scandal of free grace. Because we can't earn our salvation. The Pharisees thought they could do X, Y, Z, right? And then be acceptable to God. It's a scandal that we can be saved freely by the grace of God. The Pharisees grumble and complain um, throughout the Gospels. We see that in the eyes of, of the religious experts. They can't figure out who Messiah is. They can't figure out uh, his ministry. So today... As a church, and as I said in the email, it's completely voluntary. We don't give edicts and dictate, you shall fast today, but totally voluntary. Skip one meal, skip three meals, fast for three days, whatever. But it is a day where we want us to focus on these things, and we want to consider really this this text here and in relation to that previous text. um, What I want to drive home is the difference between mere external religion. You know what I mean by that? You just go through the motions. I went to church, came home from church. Maybe Monday I'll open my Bible and I'll read my Bible. Okay, that's external religion, okay? Compared to a true heart relationship with Christ. And in in the context of what is the motive of us fasting? Are we just fasting to, to tick off a religious box? Are we fasting to draw closer to the one true God? Mere external religion is concerned about external things. And later in chapter 7, 
Jesus will say, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In the Bible, there's about 250 references in the Old Testament to declaring a fast or the activity of fasting, two different Hebrew words. In the New Testament, not near as much, about 30, but both the noun and the verb. A a fast is a noun, but as you're fasting, it's a verb. It's something that you're actually, you're doing. What is fasting, you young people? Have you ever had to fast from your peanut butter and jelly sandwich or mac and cheese or whatever your favorite little thing is? Have you ever had to willingly withdraw from a meal? Fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes, okay? So it's not just, you know, uh, the externals, like nowadays all the rage is intermittent fasting for weight loss. Go for it. That's great. I'm trying to do it, and (laughs) that's, that's great. But that's not a biblical fast, right? That's just for something physical, right? There's physical benefits, but the Bible never commands us to do things for physically. It's always a spiritual motive, When you're fasting, you can discern, do you love God more than you love food? There's questions that you can ask yourself, such as that. And there's all types of fasts. What I'm calling a normal fast would be abstaining from food, but not water. There's an absolute fast, which means abstaining from water and food. And you see a couple of biblical uh, examples of that. Uh, Ezra, and then Paul, even in Acts 9. What I'm calling a supernatural fast would be like Moses for 40 days and 40 nights. We see that with Elijah. We see it with Jesus. And then more commonly in the New Covenant, private fast, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount there uh, in Matthew 16. And then even corporate fast, where the nation declares there's been this We're going to see it in Joel, which we're going to be going to the Minor Prophets here very shortly, but even in the book of Joel, there's there's national calamity. There's devastation from a locust invasion. Whether that's physical and spiritually, there's there's some conflict as far as what that is, but there's national calamity, and the religious leaders declare a fast. You see it even in Acts 13. Uh, it's setting out on the missionary journey where the church collectively prayed for these things. Fasting is useless if it's not from the heart, right? If you're just merely, like I said, this external phony religion, well, I fasted for three days, you know, uh, it, it's, it's nothing. John Calvin says this, you know, when, the, when those trials come, I'll tell you the quote in a minute, <laughs> when those trials come, or there's something very weighty that you have to wrestle with, that, that that's a time of intense prayer. And Calvin says this, whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. You think of you young people, which college will you go to? What will you major in? These are things that hopefully you're not just throwing a dart <laughs> and you're just going with whatever it lands, but you're, you're contemplating and counting the cost. Who to marry, where to live, what career path. You know, these, 
These are major turning points in our lives that we would do well to accompany fasting to that prayer. Consider the biblical... Is anybody in the Bible fasted? There's several biblical characters, right, in the Bible. Uh, Moses I've already mentioned, um, especially before the receiving of the Ten Commandments. King David mourning over his child's illness. Elijah fasting while he's escaping wicked Queen Jezebel. Ezra fast, um, for a mourning over sin. Remember Esther, when the Jews were at risk of being exterminated, she calls on all the maidens to say, pray and fast with me. Daniel fasted. Um, Brother Aaron led a, a great devotional on this in the book of Daniel. Actually, there's a couple times in Daniel there. You think of Jesus fasting, right, in the wilderness. You, you think of Anna, who was at the temple serving the God, God night and day with prayers and fastings there, right there in the temple early in Christ's ministry. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul. That's a pretty good company to want to be with, right? That's, that's a good grouping right there. And, and that's not an exhaustive list. So my purpose is that we would examine ourselves if we have a true heart religion and true motives for fasting. So let's jump into the text. I've broken it down. Verse 18, a serious dispute arose as Jesus is challenged about not fasting. And then we'll look at 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 as they go together. So it was a fast day for John's disciples and the Pharisees. Interesting, John's disciples were still called John's disciples even after his arrest. Um, they In John chapter 3, it says, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jews about purification. So these guys wanted to know about these things as well, but they're listed separately from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are mentioned several times in the Gospels. Who were these shady characters? <laughs> the, the, the name means the separated ones. Now, does anybody here want to take that name upon Steve and I? The separated ones. It sounds so cultish, doesn't it? Um, indeed it is. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, that there was about 6,000 persons in the first century around the time of Christ that would call themselves Pharisees. That was about 1% of the population. They were extremely influential over the common people. I've already mentioned it, but fasting is useless if it's not done from the heart. Um, you see there in verse 15, the, the disciples, let's read it again, and it happened that he was reclining at a table in Levi's house with many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many of them, and they were following him. You have that in direct contrast, this feasting to John's disciples and the Pharisees fasting. That's intentionally set up to be a contrast. And the three pillars of Judaism were, of course, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. There's a reason why Jesus tackles those three together in Matthew chapter 6, one right after the other. The Old Covenant, by the way, how many times in the Bible are we commanded to fast? Or has the people of God been commanded to fast? You, you can shout it out. How many? <laughs> no, one. 
One time, thank you, Yanni. Um, one time, and that was during the Day of Atonement. We've spent a lot of time just finishing Hebrews and that Leviticus 16 passage there. It was the Day of Atonement. It says this in 16.24, He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer a burnt offering, a burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. That's speaking of what the high priest would do. There was, uh, uh, there was declared a 24-hour fast on the day of atonement. When Jesus died, the day of atonement was put away. Right? There's no need to offer those sacrifices. And so it was done away with. So then now in the New Covenant, fasting is more spontaneous, even as it was even in the Old but it's spontaneous. Most voluntary fasts are from dusk to dawn. Um, but by the time of Christ, these Pharisees had already declared that there's two days a week, most think Monday and Thursday, um, th- that would be given to fasting and that that would make them more acceptable to, before God. And you see this with the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes of all I get. What's he doing? I'm so glad I'm not like this publican that would not even lift his eyes to heaven but was asking God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here comes the Pharisees. I'm so glad I'm not like him by the way I do this and this and this. Listing his credentials, which would ultimately become liabilities before the righteousness of God. Their attitude was based on the false assumption that True godliness was the more solemn and somber that you would be. And they would put on that gloomy face. And that's why Jesus addresses this. Matthew 6, 16. Notice he says, whenever you fast. That's how it begins. Whenever you fast. Not if you fast. Not if you choose to fast. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when, there it is again, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So in other words, comb your hair. Brush your teeth, <laughs> right? Um, don't, don't try to make it. And the Pharisees would actually go out of their way to put white powder on their faces and to make them look more godly as they fasted. They thought they would be, uh, and even ashes on their head, uh, that, that they could not be spiritual unless they were uncomfortable. Those who endure external religion lack joy. Right? If you're just going through the motions, there's no joy. Have you been to a Roman Catholic Mass in your life before? I mean, I have. I was brought up kind of a C&E crowd. And, and you go there and you see this large group of people. And they're all somber. And they all, they all leave somber. Nobody talks. There's no fellowship. There's no kindling of joy whatsoever. That's external religion. Largely. Jesus expected that Christians would fast. It's sobering to realize that that here in this text, that that Jesus 
made about fasting, it deals with the question of motive. What is your motive for fasting? To use good things to our own ends is always a sign of false religion. Fasting must forever center on God. It must be God-initiated and God-ordained. Fasting reminds us that we are sustained, as even it says in Matthew 4, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And therefore, in our experiences of fasting, it's not so much about abstaining from food as much as feasting on the Word and feasting on the Lord Himself. Fasting, like praying and giving, um, are legitimate spiritual disciplines to be practiced between the Christian and the Lord in private. We have a black box in the back, so we don't pass a plate in case someone's tempted to see what this person gives or whatever. It's between you and the Lord, right? Just as your prayer life largely should be independent of you to the Lord, to Jesus, your great high priest, and so too our fasting oftentimes is largely, except for a corporate fast, between us and the Lord. Now, it's interesting throughout that there's all this fasting that we see, but it's never prescribed how often thou shalt fast once a quarter, once a year. It's, it's never, we're never told any of that. We're never told how long to fast. You shall fast for three days, 40 days, one day, whatever. It's just not prescribed. But it is clear, one thing is clear, Jesus expected his people to fast. And we'll see that coming up in the next section here, where he talks about the bridegroom. When the bridegroom's on the scene, there's no need to fast. But once he's taken away, then they will fast. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, you have the account of um, their first kings, the latter chapters of, of course, wicked Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, her husband. She did much to instigate him unto evil, but he was a foul and wicked man as well. And really everything comes to a head here in this second to last chapter of First Kings. Beginning in verse 25. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. And it came about that when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently, uh, the marginal note there is softly, instead of being a rash and a firm man, he began. This, he was truly humbled. So he went around despondency, despondently is the NAS, or softly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring evil in his days, but I will bring evil upon his house and his son's days. You see, what's happening here is even a wicked king and his humiliation and humbling himself before a holy God, God recognizes that and he actually sees there's some type of sincerity there. 
Now, I'm not going to make a judgment whether King Ahab will be in heaven or not. It's entirely possible. God has saved wicked sinners like that. He's in the business of doing that. But you see one example here. Now, turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. Just before the, the Psalms. Ezra chapter 8, there's two examples. Actually, Ezra and Nehemiah, the returning exiles, there are several examples of fasting in here. But in chapter 8, this is Ezra speaking, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, for our little ones, and for all of our possessions. That safe journey is a straight way. What had happened is they had been in exile. They didn't realize, they didn't remember which way to actually go. Turn back to chapter 7. Chapter 7, you have verse 12 and 13. Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, of the, of the law of God, of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. What is he saying? I'm letting you all go. Whoever wants to go can go. Fast forward, there's some days that pass, but here in, in chapter 8 and verse 21, here they are at the edge of the river. They've begun traveling. And he recognizes the need that we need the Lord's help, not only for a safe journey, but a, 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 a straight journey. Verse 22, For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, The hand of our God is favorably disposed on all who seek him, but his power and his anger is against those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. What he's saying is, I, I, was, I would be ashamed to turn around and go back to the king. You know what? I'll take some of those troops. Maybe God isn't enough to protect us along the way. Maybe God isn't enough to guide and direct us. I already mentioned Esther, but in chapter 4 and verse 16, you don't have to get, turn there. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. Fast forward to the New Testament. Acts 13, Acts 14, 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord whom they had believed. So there's that whole recognition of the appointing of elders. We have two pastoral interns here. That, that Maybe we'll have another day of prayer and fasting when it comes to next January, February, seeking to discern, are these gifts for Christ's church? And, we, and, and so it, they had prayed and fasted as they appointed elders. Fasting or abstaining from food when done in faith is seen by God. And it's a statement of a, a strong desire that I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for righteousness' sake. The word um, fast means one who has not eaten. It can mean one who is empty, uh, to go without food or to be hungry. 
And fasting is found in all religions, right? I couldn't think of a religion where there's not some type of fasting. And even Islam right now, is in, I think Ramadan's still going on, right? They fast all day long and then they pig out at night. Um, but they would say that's for spiritual reasons. So this temporary abstention from nourishment on religious grounds. You can't earn brownie points with God. It's, it's not as though you're, you're trying to tick boxes and to earn God's favor. Paul addresses this in the book of Colossians, where he says in 2.20, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is it, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish in use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, right? The appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are no value against fleshly indulgence. So we have the situation. Let's go back to Mark chapter 2. We've got the situation here where the disciples and the Pharisees come up and what what why why don't your disciples fast like we do? And and, and it sets up for, for what comes here. In verse 19, first of all, let me give you this quote from John Piper. He's got a great book on fasting called Hunger for God. It says this, do you hunger for God? If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. He's saying it's not because you've been doing such a great job of feasting on the Lord and knowing His Word, and you just don't desire that because you're satisfied. He says it's not because of that. He says, it is because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with the small things, and there's no room for the great thing. If we are full of what the world offers, then perhaps a fast might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. Between the dangers of self-denial and self-indulgence is a path of pleasant pain called fasting. So, Jesus reveals really the eschatological nature of his kingdom in verses 19 and 20. And it says here in 19, Jesus said to them, again answering the critics, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. No one mourns at a wedding. Two of our members got married last night in Tijuana, Mexico. There was about 50 people there. Was it a place of mourning? Was it a place of celebration? Indeed, it was. And that's what weddings are supposed to be. And Jesus is using this analogy. You want to you poo-poo at a wedding? You want, want everybody to mourn at a wedding? Foolishness! That's not the time to mourn. Jesus paints a picture of a festive wedding. Simply put, a wedding is a time of feasting. And it's, oh, uh, to fast in the presence of the groom would be rude and even unthinkable, Right? 
Ancient Jewish weddings would typically go on for an entire week of feasting and celebrations of food and wine and singing and dancing, spilling into the streets, and Jesus is painting this picture. The bridegroom is here. The bridegroom's attendants are here, and you're trying to tell them that they have to fast at a time of celebration. The special attendants of the bridegroom would be the wedding party. Now, we read from Isaiah 62 because I think Jesus is making an allusion to this in verse 5. <clears throat> For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Jesus shows how he fulfills Isaiah 62, even though his disciples did not understand these things fully until after the resurrection. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ, that I might present you as a virgin. So Jesus describes his ministry as a wedding and himself as the bridegroom. Jesus puts his ministry and mission squarely in front, (laughs) in clear sight, of the disciples of John and the Pharisees and sets it up right there. The conflict would become so intense through these interchanges. And then the question on the Sabbath, it looked down just in chapter 3 and verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him on how they might destroy him. So this intensity of confronting them, of, of his mission, his ministry, claiming to be Messiah, offended them so much that here, very early in the gospel, they're already conspiring to kill them. Furthermore, it's the Pharisees and conspiring with the Herodians who were enemies, but they united for this one purpose. Let's get rid of this enemy. Jesus says in the next verse, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. The word taken away literally means to to violently remove, to pull away. And what is he saying? The bridegroom, when he's here, there's celebration, there's feasting, but there's going to come a time when he's violently taken away. And I think we know what that is referring to. Jesus would make it very clear to the disciples. They still didn't understand, but in chapter 8, in verse 31... He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, this idea of taken away is not just the three days in the tomb, but it's from the time of his death, resurrection, and ascension to the second coming of Christ. So we're in that age, the whole entire church age is what he is referring to. He came with a purpose. He came on a mission. He didn't come to be a victim, but the victor to actually purchase salvation for his people. Actually says it in chapter 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The new covenant is radically different than the old in verses 21 and 22. Uh, just very briefly here, the idea of the, the patch of unshrunk cloth on a garment and then the, the wine and all of that. 
Uh, These two analogies go with the verse we just considered. The revelance is the broader issue of fasting, but the main point is their finality. Both of these short little parables could be building on the wedding scene picture here. And the idea of new is not just uh, short in existence, but the idea is being superior in quality or state that had went before. And so take the analogy of the wedding. There's suddenly a hole in a wedding garment of the bridegroom, and, and you need to put pre-shrunk cloth on there. The new cloth is incomparable to the old garment, but it pulls away in the same um, Actually, that whole idea of pulling away is at the same root as Jesus being taken away from us. Um, One of the commentators said this, the new fabric which Christ brings cannot be interwoven with the tired fibers of old religion. It will simply tear apart. Likewise, there would be wine at a wedding as well. And but you would never put new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because old wineskins become dry and brittle, and you put new wine in the fermentation process, it expands. And so you must use new wineskins, which was typically the skin of a goat, maybe the hind quarter, that whole skin, would be, it would be filled up and then tied off like that. Jesus is the new wine and the new patch. Paul tells us in Colossians, for in him all the fullness dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. The new wine represents the new teaching of Jesus Christ, which is coming into the religious experience of all the new creatures in Christ. Old garments and wineskins are the structures of existing religion, tradition, especially in light of the Pharisees' teaching. But you can't put heart relationship, true heart relationship with Christ into the dry, brittle wineskins. It simply will not work. When new life in Christ stretches the wineskin of our life, unspeakable joy is the result. The issue is this, the new order of the kingdom of God, remember that I began with it, has come on the scene, a divine invasion of the kingdom of God, will not fit within the limits and confines of Old Testament religion and old traditions of the Pharisees or the old ceremonial laws. Both were coming to the end at the arrival of the kingdom, and Jesus did not just come to patch up the old way, but to bring something altogether new in the new covenants. And so that's why we see that the priesthood is gone. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. That's why we see there's no more offerings and slaying of lambs and and sacrifices because Christ is a once and for all final sacrifice. That's why there's no more mandatory circumcision of, of the men there because it's fulfilled in Christ. And now what is he concerned about? A circumcision of the heart, Romans 2.28. That's why there's no more seventh day religion, but it's about first day, Lord's Day Sabbath. These are the new things that Christ has brought. And that new covenant that I just talked about last time as we were summarizing Hebrews of He will be our God, we will be His people. 
I will remember their iniquities no more. That's the, the new covenant it's all about. Well, a couple points, quick points of application for us. Have a personal fast. Do it regularly. I, I can't dictate to you how long to do it. Some of you have dietary restrictions. I wouldn't recommend that a diabetic go three days without fasting or having orange juice, right? So you have to know yourself and your body, right? One more quote from Piper's book, Hunger for God. The supremacy of God in all things is a great reward we long for in fasting. His supremacy in our own affections and in our, all of our life choices, his supremacy in the purity of the church, his supremacy in the salvation of the lost, his supremacy in the establishing of righteousness and justice. Of course, we're having a corporate fast. You know the Korean church? Uh, when the first missionary came in 1884, they had a regular practice of often fasting for the spread of the gospel. And over the last 130 years or so, um, with their consistent fasting, there's now 30,000 churches in South Korea. It's just phenomenal <laughs> in such a short amount of time. There's other things you can fast from. Maybe you find yourself being tripped up by certain things, certain technologies, certain apps on your phone, right? It's well and good to pull back and fast from those things. Maybe some of you men from sports, you tally up all the hours you're spending looking at sports and, and all of that stuff and pull away from that for a season. Maybe some of you moms, it's social media or whatever. You can pull away from that and utilize the Lord's Day afternoon for family worship, and throughout the week, but especially on the Lord's Day. A few reasons to fast, and we're talking now more about um, private fast, to strengthen your prayer life to God. Fasting sharpens our prayers and makes us more passionate as we would pray. There's a greater sense of urgency as we're fasting and praying. Seeking direction or guidance in major decisions. Some of you come to Steve and I and I've got this, I'm at a crossroads, I need to make a decision about X, Y, or Z, or whatever. You know what? As you're laboring in prayer for that, add fasting as well. To seek deliverance and protection, God's people fast. To express repentance before God. To humble yourself before God. The psalmist says in Psalm 35, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. Even the idea of ministering to the needs of others. You see that in Isaiah 58. What about to overcome temptation? Jesus fasted for 40 days, and the devil could not tempt him. With all of the wiles of the devil. To express your love and adoration to God. Remember Anna there at the temple? Just loving to serve the Lord with prayers and fastings. What if you're here today? You're like, how can I be saved? How can God save me and make me acceptable? Is it by going through that external religion of the Pharisees, going back to the Roman Catholic Church, lighting some candles, doing some seances, whatever it is, put it away. Come to Jesus Christ. He offers you full and free salvation today. You can't earn God's favor by your works. But a broken heart the Lord will not despise. Come in brokenness over your sin, confessing it to God. 
admitting your weakness, admitting your bankruptcy, that you've got nothing to offer to Him. And He will draw near to you. The glories of the Gospel is that we are saved by His free grace. But we must hate our sin, repent of our sin, confess our sin, and then come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void. Indeed, have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.